fact that the way in which we access computing could change. So the first way in which we access computers was via mainframes, that it was via mini computers, and that it was via PCs, and then smartphones. And we've been in the smartphone era for about two decades. You know, the iPhone, which really the form factor for a smartphone hasn't changed since then, was 16 years ago. So are we on the brink of another era in computing where we access the web in a spatial three-dimensional way? And that's a big question. Hello, Alex. Welcome to the Open Metaverse podcast. Thanks for having me. Alex, to kick things off, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your crypto origin story, and your new book, Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Culture Frontier. Sure. Well, I'm a Canadian and I started my career in traditional finance. I think what are people in our industry now call TradFi. And I was there, you know, working in that business for a very long time, all through my 20s. Um, and it was really while I was working in investment banking that I first learned about Bitcoin. Now, this was well before the word blockchain or Web3 entered the language. There was this one new asset and people were really excited about it, or at least a small passionate community was. So I started to go down the rabbit hole a little bit. And the more I fell, the more convinced I became that the asset itself was really interesting, but that the underlying technology of blockchains could be revolutionary. And, you know, this was not just my own journey. I was inspired by conversations with lots of people who are really passionate and articulate and really pushing the, the first sort of frontier of the blockchain world back then. Uh, to make a long story short, at the time, there wasn't a ton of new opportunities, uh, new, new jobs or venture capital roles in the industry. Um, and so uh, in order to sort of sink my teeth into it, I decided on a different trajectory, which is that I uh, partnered up with my dad and wrote a book called Blockchain Revolution. Now that book, we had no idea, you know, what, what was going to happen with that book, if it was going to be successful, if anyone would read it, or frankly, if we were even correct about our thesis. The thesis was that the internet was entering a new era and that we were moving from an internet of information to an internet of value. The blockchains were the first digital medium for assets and that was going to transform every industry. And that was the thesis. And so we looked at a million different things. We had no idea if we were right. Um, in 2016, that book came out and uh, they say luck is the combination of preparation and good timing. Um, we, we prepared, we wrote a book, which I thought was pretty good. And we also got the timing right. This was a period when I think the first wave of people was trying to really understand what this was and, and whether they should care. And that book, which has now been translated into 19 languages and, and has sold more than a half a million copies, has really allowed me to launch into various different things in this industry. So in the past few years, I've uh, raised a venture capital fund, invested that into early stage startups, um, raised 20 million and, and returned about 50 million to investors over a two year period, launched a research institute, which counts big enterprises as members, uh, worked as a portfolio manager, investing in liquid crypto assets and public companies, and uh, of course, continue to write and investigate opportunities in this space. So, you know, in the last couple of years, I felt that there's been a really urgent need for a new book to help explain to a much bigger audience, you know, what is Web3? Why does it matter? Why should you care? What does it mean for business? What does it mean for culture? What does it mean for society? What are the challenges um, that need to be overcome? And what are the common misconceptions that we need to debunk? 
And I think that if anything, um, the 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 events of the last couple of years, whether it's the collapse of FTX or or others, has really sort of thrown new mud on the windshield, and I think clouded people's view. You know, I think people still believe the future is bright, but it's certainly not very clear. And I think that what we needed was a, a way to you know shine a new light on Web three, and um, and I hope that that book does it. So, Alex, if you were to give a TLDR, what is Web three? Well, Web3 is uh, the next era of the web and also the next era of the internet. You know, for um, uh, 40 years or so, we've had an internet of information. And that internet of information has had two webs, Web1 and Web2. Web1 was really a medium for the presentation of information on static websites. Web2 was a collaborative platform, a way for people to share information and to build communities and upload their own content. And Web3 is a platform that gives people ownership of the data class of the digital age. So a way to move and store assets, to own their own identities and data, to own their own digital creations and to have, uh, you know, property rights attached. to them. You know, for, for decades, we haven't really had a way to express property rights online. And part of that is possession. It's been very difficult for people to actually possess their digital assets. And possession is nine tenths of the law, as, as, as the saying goes. So, you know, what Web3 does is provide that economic layer for people to really have ownership over their digital selves. And I think as a result, and, and like other areas of the web, it's going to be a, you know hugely impactful for business, but it's going to have strange and, and I think un, unknowable um, cultural and social impacts. You know, I, I think it's too, uh, it's very presumptuous to try and predict everything that's going to happen in the future. And, you know, I believe that the future is not something to be predicted anyway. It's something to be achieved. And so, like, I just look at the, the the people who are building stuff in this space and from there try to extrapolate what's happening. But I believe that that ownership layer is going to change the relationship between Internet users and, and the platforms and services that they rely on. I think it's going to empower people all around the world uh, with a new toolkit that will help to flatten opportunity, make it easier for everyone to access the global digital economy. I think it's something that will empower individuals at the expense of large companies. And I think it's something that's going to revolutionize a lot of industries like financial services, but also gaming and, and lots of others as well. Alex, there's a lot to unpack here. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to unpack this one by one. So you did mention culture and social impact, and you also kind of alluded or hinted new models or new monetization method for, for different avenues of, of life because, because of ownership because of digital property rights. So just to just to start just to start with this theme, what impact do you think it will have culturally and socially? And do you think can we now monetize culture because of Web3? Yeah. I believe that culture needs a new business model. You know, for for a long period of time, if you were a creator, you had to rely on a wealthy patron. And I'm talking about the, this is in the medieval period, you know, the Renaissance. You know, so you think about the Medicis or the Catholic Church or the King of England. And typically your cultural creation, your art, in a way had to reflect their politics. Now, the rise of industrialization and, and modern capitalism changed that completely. So now as a creator, whether you were an author or visual artist or musician, you could sell your creation to a mass market, right? And so the 20th century was the era of mass media. And in a way, it was almost like a golden age for, for a lot of creators. They weren't earning the majority of their fair share, but they were getting enough to, to live on. Now, the rise of the internet, the first era of the internet, was actually supposed to improve things for creators by 
creating avenues for them to connect directly with fans and disintermediate traditional you know, middlemen, like say, I don't know, a record company, for example. If you can sell your music over the internet, you don't need to cut a CD, you don't need distribution, you don't need retail, right? Uh, and that was the promise of the first era of the web. But what happened was all of these assets, you know, things like a CD, music, that, that you would have sold through a store ended up getting copied through the internet because the internet was not a medium for value or for assets. It was a medium for information. And so that information was duplicated over and over again, like a photocopying machine, to the point where the information was basically worthless. And now you've got the rise of artificial intelligence, which I think it's clearly too early to say what the impact is going to be on culture and creators. But it is possible that um, artificial intelligence will remove human beings from a lot of cultural creations, whether it's script writing or uh, writing scores for film or TV or creating visual effects or any other form of creation. So all of a sudden, technology, which has been this tailwind for creators for centuries, is now, I think, becoming a headwind. So it's pretty presumptuous to say, well, you know, there's a new set of technologies that could help to address this problem that other technologies have created. But I actually think that's what we have with Web3. I think that Web3 puts power in the hands of creators, and it does so in a few different ways. Um, you know, the rise of NFTs, I think, is very significant. Now, they've got a, a bad rap because of some, you know, projects which have uh, gone to dizzying valuations and they've been promoted by some unscrupulous people. And unfortunately, there's a ring of truth to that, as there is with a lot of things in Web3. But NFTs are also a way to basically store culture in a digital artifact. And this is something that Yad Su actually told me when I interviewed him for the book. He said, you know, Bitcoin is a store of value. NFTs are a store of culture. And so, you know, in the research for my new book, Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier, I learned and, and, and became to begin to appreciate how NFTs were empowering creators. So there's one story in particular, which I actually just wrote up for an, an op-ed in Coindesk about uh, a young artist named Sebi, who's 10 years old, who also happens to be an autistic boy who lives in the Philippines. Now, he's someone who has been doing art therapy as part of his treatment. And his mom, who's very proud of him, you know, has been sharing some of her work, some of his work rather, on Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. Now, some people wanted to purchase his work, but the thing about his therapy is that he's supposed to keep the original piece as part of his um, therapeutic process. But someone had told her in the in the burgeoning NFT and Web3 community in the Philippines about um, how he could potentially sell his art to collectors and fans who are interested, but keep the original. And so since 2021, Sebi has made over 16,000 US dollars, which is a drop in the bucket compared to the 25 billion of you know total NFT sales or you know the 300 projects that have made a million dollars each in, uh, in residual royalties. But for one kid and his family living in the Philippines who need to pay for his autism treatment, it's transformational. Um, it's changed their lives and that would not have been possible without Web3. So Web3 gives uh, creators new ways for them to monetize their content. That's number one. Number two is that it creates new avenues to fund creative ventures. And I think this is going to be particularly true in the gaming and the interactive entertainment space. So if you're a developer, and it's by the way, this is also something that benefits creators in parts of the world where they maybe don't have access to the same resources as a developer might in, say, the United States. So if you want to raise money to you know, launch a game, well, it's hard to do it if you're an unproven studio. But if you've got a great community, then you can raise money directly from them by selling in-game assets. And we've seen some really you know, interesting examples. 
Now, there are implementation challenges to that regulatory and so forth. But the fact of the matter is that that is a way to put um, money in the hands of creators and to help them fund their creative projects where it wasn't possible before. And I think that's very significant. And then the third thing is that I actually think that Web3 can help em enable and fulfill the promise of AI. And the big issue with AI is that all of this content, which creators own and should be getting paid for, is getting put into large language models where it's being used to create something on the other end. And that something on the other end is based on some IP that somebody owns, but there's no way to trace and track the provenance and the ownership of that asset. But as I mentioned earlier, we have lots of ways to ensure creators get paid. You know, you can program digital goods, digital assets with, uh, you know, re residual royalties, for example. And you can always know who the original creator was by just looking at the blockchain. So we can empower creators and empower the owners of large language models by making sure creators get paid fairly, making sure large language models have access to the best and most accurate um, IP. And so that's a way to fulfill the promise of AI, but ensure that creators get compensated fairly. So, you know, all of these things taken together um, are going to set the stage for a new business model for culture. And to me, that's very exciting. Alex, you did mention NFT. Uh, typically, when people hear about NFT, uh, they associate it to PFP projects, which I think is a misnomer. Uh, so can you double click on you, in fact, did double click on various avenues it opens for creator, but can you uh, double click on some of the ways the NFTs could be used for digital ownership uh, just so our audience can comprehend what you just said? Yeah, I think that PFPs are what they call skeuomorphic design, right? The idea that when we're launching something new, oftentimes it sort of resembles what we've seen before. And so I think when people think of digital goods or virtual assets, they often think of um, avatars, you know, skins things that give their, you know, uh, character, you know, some unique attributes in an online world. And so I think that's a very natural fit. I also think that for a lot of people who spend more time online than offline, and that's true for younger people, um, they're, they care about the presentation of self in everyday digital life. You know, there's a very famous book called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And it's all about the ways in which we convey and project an image of ourselves to the world. And that's true. Like right now, right now I'm projecting an image to you. I have a bookshelf, you know, I'm wearing this cozy sweater. Like these things all mean something. <laughs> um, and if you're online, um, you know, the presentation of digital self is important too. You know, what's your PFP? What's your, what are your assets? You know, what's your track record? What do you say? What do you stand for? All that kind of stuff. And so I think that it's very natural that PFPs were the first place to start, but they're very much like the first place. And I think that in general, you know, the, if people, um, conflate the two, think that they're one and the same, then that is a disservice. I mean, ultimately, an NFT is a way to store cultural in a digital store culture in a digital asset. And so that can be really anything that you can, you know, put your mind to, right? It can be a PFP, it can be an, an in-game asset, it can be a piece of art or a collectible. Um, it can be, you know, a share of or, you know, a, a way to access a community. Um, you know, through like a token-gated uh, community, for example. Another thing, too, is that NFTs have a rich array of cultural use cases, but they actually have other use cases in other areas. So one example of that is an identity. So like soul-bound tokens, for example, non-fungible and non-transferable tokens that gather data about you that you can use to unlock services, like, say, financial services or, you know, healthcare services and so forth. Soul-bound soul tokens, I think, are a fascinating use case. Um, contracts. Every most most like legal agreements um, 
you know, even whether it's even like your mortgage to your home or something is actually uh, unique. It's unique because it's, you know, that title to that house and it's this mortgage, this amortization, this schedule, this and this and this, right? And so all of those things are unique. And so you can actually use NFTs as a way to codify um, the terms of a unique agreement, whether it is, uh, you know, the, the terms of owning in a collectible asset or the terms of owning a home or some other real world assets. So, you know, I think that with to with, with NFTs, the, the opportunities are vast. And I think with tokens in general, the opportunities are kind of limitless um, for, for a simple reason that like a token is a blank slate. You know, it is a, it's like a container for value. You can program it to contain anything. Kind of like a website, like a website. I'm just looking at the tabs on my website. So right now we've got a podcast studio, I've got social media, I've got email, I got, uh, you know, e-commerce, I got, you know, YouTube, I got all these other things. Like websites can be programmed to do anything. They can be programmed to represent anything of information. And a token can be programmed to represent anything of value. And so like the fact that the first few use cases for NFTs were PFPs, or the, fa the fa fact that the first use cases for tokens were cryptocurrencies is says more about the fact that we're early than anything else, that those were the examples that people understood from the old world. And so they were the ones that were first to launch. But ultimately, I think that tokens can be used to represent almost anything. Excellent, Alex. Uh, earlier, you did mention AI. And I think you were referring to how creators in the presence of AI can use NFTs and Web3 for their benefit. I think if we kind of revert, I think Web3 could also be very like useful for um, even businesses like in, 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 the, in, in the presence of um, AI. So for example, right now in Web2, we have a lot of monetization that goes through ads. But let's say if you think about world and where there are like loads of AI agents, how could you monetize that? And then you can't you can't monetize that. But if you look at some some of the ways, the way Web three monetize, if you look at uh, different DApps where each transaction or each click, certain percentage of that transaction goes through, like the, there's a take rate. I think that also opens up a new way to do business model, like new ways of doing business and new way of monetizing monetization in presence of AI. So I think that's very fascinating. So this brings me to another topic. How do you think the inter how do you kind of see the intersection of Web3 and AI? How do you kind of see that monetization? How do you kind of see that correlation? Well, I think that right now there are several technologies that are all hitting their stride at roughly the same time. And to my knowledge, this is not something that's ever happened before. In the past, we've seen the rise of new technologies that have gone on to have a, a profound and, and sometimes unexpected impact on the world, whether that's the internet or computing or the radio or electricity, steam engine. Each of those has been kind of transformational in its own right. But right now, we have several technologies all emerging at the same time. You know, you have artificial intelligence, which is, <laughs> I mean, it depends on how you want to define it. I, I view it as basically redefining what we thought computers uh, could do, but also redefining what we thought people could do when, when empowered with these tools. And I think that it's going to change the world in amazing and unexpected ways. Um, the rise of blockchains, which automate the movement of value peer-to-peer -peer and can enable complex business processes to be written in code. And I think that's equally as transformational. But you're also seeing the rise of, you know, um, extended reality. The fact that the way in which we access computing could change in the near future. And that's not something I'm I'm in favor of or against, but it is something that we've seen 
happened in the past. So the first way in which we access computers was via mainframes, then it was via mini computers, and then it was via PCs, and then smartphones. And we've been in the smartphone era for about two decades. You know, the iPhone, which really the form factor for a smartphone hasn't changed since then, was 16 years ago. So are we on the brink of another era in computing where we access the web in a spatial three-dimensional way? And that's a big question. And then the final thing is the rise of connected devices, smart devices, autonomous vehicles, and so forth. All of these technologies are not separate, but related. And I think actually in the same way that the term internet went from describing a narrow set of internetworking technologies to describing a whole range of, of, of technologies and business models and social behaviors and other phenomena. I think that the term Web3 actually is a good one, a useful one to describe the convergence of all of these different technologies. And I think right now, because they're viewed as discrete areas of, of interest, people view them almost as zero sum, right? It's like, I've heard that Web3 funding is down at the expense of uh, AI. Well, really what they're saying is that, you know, large language model based projects are getting more money than blockchain based projects. But to, to me, collectively, they're part of this next era of the web. And I see them all interacting with each other. So I've talked a little bit about um, how creators could get paid fairly. There's a whole rain, a whole new area in, um, in uh, web three known as decentralized science, um, you know, decentralized data, where basically we're using these tools as a way to um, collectively pool together all of the intelligence that we'll need to make AI work effectively. I think that, you know, the, the future of data is not, or the future of AI is not, uh, dis, you know, siloed right now, the big tech companies own like huge swaths of data and that's what gives them power in, in, uh, programming and, and training these models, but there's more data that lives outside of those companies than inside of it. So we need new tools to help pool those together, ensure the creators get paid fairly. And then I also think about how this intersects with. Um, you know, extended reality. Um, I think that if the web does become spatial, we need ways to program property rights and 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 uh, rights of personhood into the digital realm. And that's where the blockchain part comes in. But we also need a way to um, connect these different worlds together to make it so that we can, you know, move seamlessly between them. And that's not something that necessarily can be achieved with just blockchain. We need other tools as well. So Alex, one thing we're recently seeing with, with the convergence of AI and spatial computing, um, there would be shortage of computation. And I've seen a lot of interesting projects trying to uh, solve that through crypto incentives. So projects like Akash and Render and, and so on and so forth, using token incentive to kind of uh, solve the problem of computation, which are required to train these AI models, which are required to have that computation so we can do rendering of our metaverse. Um, so yeah, that, that's really interesting. You know, um, on, on that point, I think that there are two reasons why decentralized compute or decentralized physical infrastructure is important. Um, one is that, yes, you're right. If you think about all those things I just mentioned, whether it's rendering a real-time realistic world um, or if it's running, you know, huge <laughs> uh, training uh, algorithms like large language models or whether it's, blockchain-based computing or transaction um, transactions, all of those things require huge, huge amounts of computing power. So we need all the computing power we can get our hands on. But there's a deeper, more fundamental reason for it, which is that you know if you're building decentralized applications and the whole idea is that they are open, they're accessible to anyone, they're difficult to shut down, 
and they have no centralized sort of command structure, then you need to also have infrastructure underneath that that reflects the um, those features as well, those attributes. And so like in the end, if everything is run off of, you know, if you've got some decentralized, you know, whatever location-based game or something, but it's all based on Google Maps API, or if you're using, you know, some, if everyone's moving and storing NFTs, but it's all, you know, being stored on Amazon Web Services or something, in the end, you're still relying on a centralized, you know, party. And I think to fulfill the promise of Web3, the underlying infrastructure itself also needs to be sufficiently decentralized. So there's both a need for it, but there's also a principled reason that it's a good idea. Alex, I noted you used the word sufficiently decentralized. So it, it, does that mean like we require some level of decentralization, but after that there's like diminishing returns? Yeah, I think so. I mean, to me, there, there's a big difference between decentralized and disorganized. Um, like something can be decentralized without being anarchy. And I think that there are lots of you know useful examples of that. And I think it's okay that there be people who make who are delegated decision makers who have some authority to you know help to shape the direction of of uh, decentralized systems. Um, that that is not, in my view, at odds with uh, the principle of decentralization. So, so Alex, we also touched upon when we when we were speaking about income inequality in in in, in our current world. There's a power law in terms of income equality in, in our current way of life. Do you think Web3 Web three has the potential to kind of solve that or at least help negate that in a way that the income inequality shrinks? I think that what Web3 does, rather than redistribute wealth, is it pre-distributes opportunity. It creates the conditions for everyone to play on the same playing field. You know, for people who are living in the global south who don't have access to banking, who are beholden to a local market and who earn a lot less than people in other countries for the same work, um, there are ways in which Web3 can address all of those issues. It doesn't mean that it will solve problems. Like technology doesn't solve problems. It has no moral agency. But the fact that you can, you know, work for a DAO and earn money in USDC and store money in a, in a currency that doesn't, you know, deflate away or inflate away uh, is, is in and of itself something that pre-distributes opportunity. You know, the ability to join a gaming guild and like earn, you know, rewards inside of a virtual world um, is a way to pre-distribute opportunity. Um, you know, all of the ways in which we can use this as a way to connect people around the world financially to, you know, remit money using stable coins um, or to, um, you know, store value digitally rather than in paper money. These are all ways in which I think I think the technology pre-distributes opportunity. But it's not a panacea and it's not going to solve the world's problems. And honestly, like I think like any new technology, we're kidding ourselves if we don't think Web3 is not going to create um a group of hyper wealthy and influential people. And indeed it already has. I mean, just look at where, where we're at right now. I mean, there are, <laughs> the founders of a lot of layer ones or, or big corporations are, uh, you know, rich um, people in the same mold as web two founders and in a lot of respects. Right. So like, clearly that's like, it's not, don't, don't go seeking salvation and new technology or seeking higher purpose. Like this is a toolkit. I think it empowers people. I think any because anyone can access it, it should flatten the world. It should make it easier for everyone to compete. And I think in the aggregate, that's a good thing. But it's not going to solve you know all of our problems, and it may perpetuate some of the same inequities that exist in the world today. So apart from digital ownership, 
and digital property rights, one of the promise of Web3 is you become the owner of the network you contribute to. So, so, so Alex, how do you see the evolution of Deepin and SocialFi? Like we're seeing a lot of these social media apps pop, pop, pop out, such as Star Arena, these days Fend.tech. We're also seeing a lot of emergence of interesting kind of heliums of the world, kind of uh, hive mapper of the world that attempts to decentralize Uber, Grab, so on and so forth. How do you kind of see that evolve? What I what do you think are some of the opportunity and what do you think are some of the challenges? Well, I think it's a huge opportunity for the reasons that I've presented, which is that I think that there is a, a, a real reason why these systems can actually create better products and services than centralized their centralized counterparts. Um, mapping is a really good example. You mentioned Hive Mapper. So right now, Google Maps is the dominant mapping data provider in the world. And it's not just the, the application that we all use on our phones. It's, you know, every delivery service, Uber, all of your state houses, local insurance companies, banks, anybody who needs mapping data relies on a single source for that. So from a just pure market perspective, it'd be useful if buyers had choice because it would improve the quality overall. Um, now, that's number one. But number two is that Hive Mapper's data could be better than Google's data. Like it doesn't matter how many Google trucks you can put on the road driving around. There are always going to be more of other cars. So how many of those other cars can you equip with Hive Mapper's dash cam and software to turn it effectively into like a Google van? And the answer is that, well, a lot. They've already sold out of their dash cams. And so far in less than, you know, I think 18 months, they have mapped, um, 5 million kilometers, which I think is 8% of the world's roads. Now, there are large parts of the world that have not seen a high mapper vehicle. But in certain markets, um, you know, LA, Seoul, I think, New York, they're, they're, they're remapping and remapping and remapping these streets, like, you know, on a very frequent basis in a way that was, would not be possible with Google. So all of a sudden, you've got more timely, more accurate mapping data um, that you can use not just for some you know consumer facing ad but for all the other reasons that people need mapping data i think that's really exciting and the other thing too is that in, in my view dpen and hive mapper is an example uh neatly kind of capture the convergence of technologies like hive mapper would not have been possible if there wasn't a 300 dollars dash cam that was really high quality that you could use to like capture all this rich data and that's an you know an internet of things like you know technology hardware innovation. Um, the second thing is that you need AI. Um, so they need, they need AI to, you know, fill in the gaps with the computer, what the camera might be missing, but also to, you know, do, do identifying, um, obstacles, identifying landmarks, blurring out people's faces, like all of that stuff requires AI. And then without the blockchain part that helps to, to coordinate these resources and incentivize people, then there's no reason for you to do this. Why would I put a dash cam on my dash and, you know, you know, spend the money installing it if I didn't think in some way I was going to benefit. And so, you know, you take these things together and all of a sudden you've created a service, which in a year has mapped 5 million kilometers of planet. And it's all based on sort of decentralization, but with some coordination from, you know, a company. And I think that's a, an interesting model. Um, in terms of like decentralized physical infrastructure in other areas, I think that there are some limits. I think that in the case of, of helium, and some of these others, you know, they're trying to um, 
you know, use a proof of system that sort of proves that you're, you know, setting up nodes and that you're doing all of this to actually advance the network. But there's so much gamesmanship that it's been very difficult to, you know, scale these networks without there being some level of, of like, like fraudulent behavior by nodes who aren't really doing it in the best interest of the network. And I think that there's lots of like real implementation challenges to doing that. So there are some examples, Akash, Filecoin, others, where, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense where it's working, others where maybe there's some growing pains, and then others where I think it's working really well. And I think HiveMapper is a good, good example of that. Very interesting, Alex. I think like since we all, like at least I work in Web3, so what happens is you're, you're in this echo chamber. I really love the fact that you're able to think from a macro level where you're able to kind of relate the dots in terms of convergence of the technology. And I think that that has been the reoccurring theme. So that's very fascinating to see. And I, I really enjoyed that um, that thought process. Um, so Alex, uh, I think we also discussed this when uh, when we spoke earlier regarding the killer use case of Web3 or crypto. What do you think is or are the killer use cases for crypto? Well, I think it's too early to say. I think there are examples of applications where there's a clear product market fit. And I think that stable coins are an example of that. You know, stable coins are like the email of Web3. <laughs> they're like this thing that everyone like kind of can use because they're they're immediately obvious what their value is and they're very skeuomorphic in their design. It's like people are already used to accessing banking online and sending money peer to peer, at least within the United States. So the idea that you have a way to store and move US dollars globally um, and instantly is like very obvious to people. Just like the idea of using electronic mail is very obvious. It's like mail, but faster and electronic, you know, so that's easy. But I think in terms of what the future use cases are going to be, I, I don't really know. I think that um, ownership as a layer for the web is going to create all sorts of new um, areas for, for new designs and new applications that we haven't really thought of. I think that gaming and the metaverse is this area that personally I think is very attractive for this. For a very simple reason, almost a, a reason that's almost similar to the reason for stablecoins, which is that people today already spend billions of dollars on virtual assets, virtual goods, not digital goods, <laughs> subtle distinction. But basically, they spend billions on things that they buy but don't own, right? They don't actually have property rights to them. They, they can't possess them. They can't move them peer to peer. If they want to um, sell them, you know, typically if, if they're permitted. They're mostly renting. Yeah, they're, they're rentiers, right? And it's like there's no property rights, um, and you know if the if the landlord changes the rules, then you know you're going to forfeit your asset, right? So to me, it's like okay, well, let's let's keep designing cool games that people love to play, and uh, you know they will um, enjoy. But if you're going to buy something, why not own it? Why not have property rights to the thing that you bought? Like if you're spending hundreds of dollars a month on your mom's credit card, you know, at Fortnite or whatever, like. At least have those assets you can take them with you you can resell them when you grow out you know when you grow out of playing video games and you want to go hang out at a bar with your friends then you can sell those things they're worth value right so the, the idea that um we we already spend billions on goods that we don't own i think is a really interesting opportunity for web3 the challenge however is that most of the web3 games at least that i've seen um start with the premise that like ownership is the gameplay like earning and owning and trading assets, that's the whole point of the game. Like the gameplay itself is sort of incidental to the idea of like making money or trading or speculating or whatever. 
And I think like in the long run, that's fine. You know, they're like casinos exist and, and there are lots of gambling apps. And so there's tons of reasons why that, that, that might be a successful area. But I think in the, like, if you want to think big picture, we need games and virtual experiences where ownership is a feature of the experience of the gameplay, but not the feature or not the purpose. And I think that's something that's been lacking so far. Now, you know, I've heard lots of very positive things from the world of Web3 gaming about how there's a there's a new title just around the corner that's going to, you know, achieve this perfect mixture. And I'm optimistic, but I'm I'm in I think the industry at this point is kind of in the show me mode. It's like show me that you can do this, that you can create something that balances or that that adds ownership and an asset uh, and an economic sort of activity as a as a feature of the gameplay, but not something that overwhelms it. And I think that that's something that we need to figure out. So Alex, do you have any Web3 game in mind that you think will be able to figure figure this out? No, I, I, I don't have anything in particular. Are you aware of any? Like, is there anything that excites you? Because I don't I don't pretend to know everything. I'd love to know who's working on it. Yeah, there are the, the few, few games on the horizon. Again, not financial advice. Some of the games we have invested in, some, some we are not invested in. I'm really looking forward towards crypto version of EVE, Eve Online. Um, the second one, like the few AAA titles. One is Godzilla. I think Animocos invest in Godzilla. There's one called Sharpnell. Um, then, then, then we're also working with like loads of fun games. Like one is Farcana. Uh, another one is Clang, which is like Sims, uh, Sims version, but has like token elements. So there are few in the private market that 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 are basic. That are basically working not only on no- novel ways of introducing uh, ownership, but also have interesting gameplay and and they know how to design the game. Um, so Alex, um, we, we touched on stablecoin achieving product market fit. And recently, um, we have seen this trend emerge where people are talking about RWA, real world asset getting tokenized. And this is something, this is not new. Like in 2017, 18, there was a whole uh, hype regarding RWAs, but it didn't take off. Do you think this is the next big trend and do you think the infrastructure, liquidity, and the users, users are ready for this trend? Yeah, they, we used to call RWA security tokens, basically, that you would like program a token to represent a claim on something like a stock or a bond or some asset or whatever. Um, yeah, and I think so it's nothing new, but just because uh, the idea didn't take off the first time doesn't mean it was a bad idea. Sometimes there's nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come again. <laughs> and I think that now is an interesting time for a couple of reasons. So in order to think like to think about this issue, there are sort of three components, right? One is, does the technology enable you to do it? Number two, does the market exist for it? Is there going to be demand and will it be successful commercially? Number three, what's the regulatory landscape? And you know, is it feasible to do this? So I think that probably one and two have already been answered. We know from stable coins that there is clearly a product market fit for a token based by based on an RWA called the US dollar. Whether that means that there'll be demand for tokens based on other RWAs, who knows? But we know that the concept itself works. So if you can find an asset that people want to own, then that's that. Number two is market structure. What makes tokens for what makes stable coins to me so interesting is that they're global in nature and they're peer-to-peer. So like if you want to create a token for like a stock and the only people who can buy it are customers of these banks that exist in the United States and the 
then you're not really recreating anything new. You're just sort of duplicating effort, in my opinion. Now, if you're what you're doing is creating a way for people to, I don't know, anyone in the world who has access to an Ethereum wallet and uh, and uh, USDC to also use that as a way to make investments into the U.S. stock market uh, via RWAs based on Apple, and you're in like India, then that is actually hugely valuable because it's actually quite challenging for people around the world to own uh, capital assets like U.S. stocks, for example. Um, and so if you're if like the first thing everybody wants is a U.S. dollar bank account, okay, stable coins. The second thing they want is a U.S. dollar investment account. And so if you can provide that either in a fully decentralized way or via, you know, CD5 way where it's like tokens based on assets held in custody somewhere, then you are unlocking a massive opportunity. So there's no reason why that can't be successful. But the issue is number three, which is the regulation. So like, you know, I just don't, I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert in the rules in every country, but I just know that there are very strict limitations on who can own certain assets and whether or not, you know, those people are KYC'd. And like, if you're like, think about it, like if, if JP Morgan, I'm just making this up, were to do a tokenization project where it's tokenizing a whole bunch of assets that it holds on its balance sheet or something, and then is able to sell those to, um, or like to, to, yeah, sell them to like customers of JP Morgan. But if it's fully peer-to-peer, like if it's a fully Web3 thing, then those, nothing would stop those people from then selling those assets to someone else, right? Like that's the nature of digital goods. But then they do that. And then what happens if that person sells it to someone who sells it to someone who sells it to someone who, se- who turns out to be a Colombian drug dealer or something? And then all of a sudden, like JP Morgan's like, um, you know, securitized an asset that they've sold kind of indirectly to a criminal or something like that. So I don't really know. I just think that there are lots of regulatory challenges uh, in order to fulfilling that reality. But I, we do know clearly that from a technology and from a market product market fit perspective, those questions have already been solved, right? And so I just think that like it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, when we get a workable regime or perhaps innovators just you know innovate kind of on the margins of the regulations in the international market, then that's sort of part of the future. I don't, I don't think that's ideal. Like, I think it'd be better if this was compliant. Um, but I just don't know if the, if there's the will to, uh, create that, create those kinds of, um, you know, workable global solutions. That's a very balanced answer, Alex. Funny story. The reason I got into DeFi in 2020 was I wanted to get exposure to, uh, us ETFs and stocks. And there were a lot of synthetic products like that available in 2020. And since I'm from Pakistan, I just couldn't invest in U.S. stocks. So yeah, that was literally the reason how I got exposed to DeFi. And that just led to a whole new rabbit hole, which I, I don't think I, I want to come out of. Uh, so, Alex, that this leads us to the last segment of the podcast. And I hope, and this is typically the fun one. So this this is called a rapid, rapid fire round. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you questions and hopefully the answers are rapid. My first question is regarding DAOs. So Alex, what are some of the DAOs you're part of? Well, I would, I don't know how to answer that exactly. Like I, I, I'm an owner of um, DeFi tokens in a bunch of different protocols, which give me, you know, a say in the ownership and the governance of those protocols. Um, and so like in a way, I'm members of those DAOs because I have an economic stake in them. 
but I wouldn't say that I'm like actively involved in the governance. Beyond that, like DAOs for for like co- coordinating like fundraising efforts or like you know friends of the benefits or those kinds of things. Like I'm not a member of any of those DAOs. I'm an observer of them, <laughs> but not a member of them. So, so which one of the DAOs like caught your attention, which you thought was novel or or pro- provocative? Well, um, like I do, I do think that the, in the world of DeFi, um, a DAO is sort of the perfect structure for organizing um, people and assets and money. Like I think that more than anything, um, like the, something like Uniswap has done a really good exa- good job of that. And it's like simply that you know, as a decentralized exchange, you need um, liquidity, and so you need people providing liquidity. And so, how do you do that? Well, you incentivize them by making them owners in the platform. And so the more liquidity they provide, the more they own. Um, and I think that's just such a perfect example. Or like Compound, like the more, you know, you're, the more liquidity you put into a lending pool, the more you're likely to earn as a result of that. And, you know, that makes sense because if you're, you know, the biggest trader on the stock exchange, uh, then, you know, you are the one who should benefit the most in a way, right? So I think that that's, that's really, really interesting. But I also think that um, in a way that that ownership um, becomes an issue with lots of other kinds of applications because it's easy for a DeFi application to be hyper-financialized, but it's not, I think, so great to our, to our conversation about gaming when it happens in like social apps or gaming apps because there are lots of users who are just not interested in that and will be scared away by it. Alex, in terms of blockchain ecosystem, do you have any favorite or not favorite, but like any blockchain ecosystem that you think... Uh, could be could be interesting from an infrastructure standpoint where you see a lot of activity going forward. Can I say Ethereum? <laughs> it's like apart from Ethereum. Apart, apart from, from Ethereum. Ethereum. Yeah, I mean, look, Ethereum is the. I think I think we're always so excited about like what's next, whether it's like a layer two or some new alt layer one that we forget that you know Ethereum is this two hundred billion dollar network that supports you know dozens of uh, applications. I don't know, hundreds of applications in, in all these different areas, whether it's DeFi or gaming or what have you. Um, you know, I, I'm very familiar with the Cosmos people. I was an, uh, an early advisor um, to the project before the token launched. And that's more just because I'm Toronto-based and, and one of the founders, Ethan Buckham, was a friend of mine. And so, um, you know, I've been tracing that, tracking that very closely. And I, I, I really like the people that are in that space. I think they're incredibly sincere and hardworking. And, um, you know, I think that they're um, really focused. I think in this in this business, you know, there are there's missionaries, there are mercenaries, and there are pragmatists. And I think that a lot of um, ecosystems uh, reflect the character of their, of their communities, right? And I think that what I like about Ethereum is that it's pragmatic. Um, what I like about cosmos is that it's a missionary sort of zeal right like i think that we need pragmatism to scale web3 but i also think without missionaries you can't push a new frontier like if if web3 is the is the next economic and cultural frontier for the web then you need the people who are kind of um sincere enough in their beliefs that they will push that frontier and i think that cosmos has that and i and i find that really remarkable and 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 commendable because they've been at it for you know, years and the the this the um the ecosystem is growing and it's doing very well, but they've been through many cycles and the exact same people who were there at the beginning are still there now. Now I think that's kind of interesting as well. You know, they're they're committed to the long run, um, and I think that's very cool. 
Charles, do you think in terms of L1s and blockchain, is architecture, technical architecture more important or do you think the ideology, the culture of the blockchain is more important? I think they're both important and maybe they're both necessary but not sufficient in their own right. I think that, you know, you need technology, obviously, it needs to work, but you can't do it without a community. I mean, like Bitcoin and Ethereum are successful because of tech, I suppose, but really it's because of community. I mean, the 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 um, the the way in which people talk about Bitcoin um, is something that is very hard to recreate in humanity, right? It's hard to get people who are so united around a core set of primitives or, or beliefs or technologies that they're prepared to, you know, make it their lifestyle and make it their personality. You know, people do that. They do that with religion. They do that with political ideologies, and they do it with Bitcoin. And so. I mean, that's a powerful example of how um, belief in community can can propel the value of something. And I think in Ethereum's case, it's similar. And I think that's probably one of the challenges of launching a new network, which is that, you know, things always look good on the way up. But on the way down, a lot of people who were excited may cut bait and move on because they, um, you know, are not they're not as dedicated as as uh, they may have been if they'd been around for many years. And so I, I do wonder about that openly, you know, as it relates to a lot of these new layer twos and, and layer ones. It's like, can it, how many of the people in those communities are mercenaries? How many of them are missionaries and how many of them are pragmatists? And if the mercenary part is more than a third, then you're, you're screwed, right? And I just think like, if you look at some of the uh, examples from the last cycle, you know, when people, when there wasn't money to be made, they cut bait and ran. And I think that that's something that every founder of a of a protocol has to consider and deal with. Yeah, I think that's a good mental model to evaluate blockchain or, or blockchain culture. Yeah. Um, so Alex, what's your pet peeve in Web3? My pet peeve? <laughs> um, where, where to start? <laughs> you know, I think that there's a total, look, I think that I'm sympathetic to, I'm not a developer, and I'm sympathetic to people who love, uh, you know, technology problems for their own sake. But I think there's a preoccupation with developing infrastructure versus like developing applications that people want to use. Um, I think that's number one. Number two, I think that there's a huge preoccupation with trying to, with, with like, what problem does Web3 solve? And I think a lot of people are designing to that problem. And I think that's actually a mistake. Because like lots of technologies, when they first emerge, are actually less useful than the thing that came before. You know, like email was not as useful as picking up the phone because every person, in at least you know, in your in your peer group, had a telephone, whereas nobody had an email in the early days, right? Um, or like credit cards were less useful than cash because most merchants didn't accept them. But like those are technologies that were inherently more useful uh, once they scaled. So I just think like trying to st stick with only what's the problem set today of some existing industry is like stupid. That's not the way that technology innovation ever works. It works by creating new and unexpected and much weirder things. <laughs> you know, um, the, 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 the benefit of the internet wasn't that it made how we consume magazines more efficient. It led to a whole new media landscape that transformed that entire industry. Um, and I think the same thing is going to be true. I think that's, that's another one. And then I think that in general, the, the community has a habit of either being of being prone to like bouts of despair and bouts of euphoria. And I just think that's not healthy. <laughs> it's not it's not a sustainable way to live. You know, like 
the bouts of you, the bouts of despair. It's like everyone becomes tribal. There's infighting, and it's like everyone's at each other's throats and da da da. And then you know, in the points of of um, of uh, you know euphoria, everyone is gloating and and um, peacocking and talking about how smart they're and how great they're. And I just think like you know the the. The arc of progress is not a straight line, obviously, but it's a little more helpful if you can just sort of like maintain an even keel as you're building and not get so caught up in this stuff. So that's three things off the top of my head. I could probably think of others. <laughs> so Alex, what is the most frequently dApp or protocol you use in Web3? Um, probably Cosmos, um, Osmosis, the decentralized exchange, um, just because I happen to kind of be deep in that world and have lots of those things and so you know i I'm, I'm i would say i use that quite a bit yeah just for our listener osmosis uh is also mev protected so uh that means you won't be front run so it's it's a great uh dex to use um alex final question before we conclude what was the last thing you searched on google or chat gpt <laughs> the last thing i searched on chat gpt or google oh so well I wrote this, um, I wrote out this list of recommendations of books that I'd read for Web3 for the research for my book. And I put it into a, into a, a Twitter thread. And it was easy because I could put 240 characters. And then I took my Twitter thread and I put it into LinkedIn and it was 3,000 characters too long. And I was like, oh, now I have to go back and try and edit my list of recommendations. So I put it, I think my last chat GPT was take this list of recommendations and make it so that it fits into a LinkedIn message. And I did that. And with predictable chat GPT results, it looked good. But then when I read each thing, it was like, it made no sense. So I had to go back and do it, <laughs> do it again anyway. So it's like the both of the benefit and the limitations of, of the technology. Thank you, Alex, for joining us today. Uh, before Before we go... Uh, could you tell your? Could you tell our audience how 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 they can follow you? How they can follow your writing? Well, yeah, I mean, look, check me out on on Twitter at Alex Tapscott. I try to tweet often about things that interest me. Um, and then the other thing would would be just to check out the book. You know, Web three charting the internet's next economic and cultural frontier. The best way to buy it is in massive volume. Don't forget if you're uh, buying for friends and family. No, in all seriousness. Um, you know, I, I, I call Web3 a, a frontier and frontiers have got lots of opportunities and lots of risks. And I think, you know, even the most adventurous, um, you know, pioneer needs a needs a field guide to help them navigate that frontier. So I'm hoping that the book is useful. So please check it out. And uh, if you do decide to pick up a copy, leave a review. Uh, always curious what people think of the book. OK, thank you, Alex, for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.